everyone, it's Sammy. Welcome back to another episode of Politically Blonde. In this episode, I will be speaking with special guest, Professor Tess Wise from Wake Forest University. Her research focuses on household debt, economic insecurity, and race and ethnic politics in the United States. I recently took a summer class at Harvard University this summer called Race in U.S. Politics with her, where we discussed complex topics such as the basis of racism in our country. In this episode, we will discuss some of the key points that were taught in this class, as well as current issues such as critical race theory, and in the end, she will discuss a little bit about her new book. Hi, Professor Wise. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me. I took your class because I am very interested in racial inequities, and I wanted to learn more so that I could be better informed in the fight against racism. But it was truly eye-opening the extent to which the country has embraced racist beliefs, well before slavery and long after. Can you discuss Charles Mill's racial contract that basically explains how white Europeans have interacted with all other races since they colonized this country? Sure. And I'm so excited that you want to talk about the racial contract (laughs) because it's one of my favorite uh, theories for unpacking race in U.S. politics, but race more generally. And I think to understand the racial contract, it's good to think about what Charles Mills was was discussing against. So if we think about the social contract, let's talk about that for a second. So social contract theory comes out of enlightenment philosophy in mostly England and France. And it involves theorists like Hobbes and Locke and Rousseau and Kant. And this was a big important theory at the time because it emphasized that government was founded on the popular consent of individuals as opposed to because of the the divine right of kings. And so at this point, it was basically pushing back against um, monarchies. And it really asked some really big questions, like how powerful be and what are our political obligations? And social contract theorists basically argue that government is founded on the popular consent of these individuals and that the individuals are understood to be equal. And that when these individuals agree to move from the state of nature, this sort of like non-government anarchy and chaos state to a political society, they either explicitly or implicitly buy into something called the social contract in which they sacrifice some of their freedoms so they don't get to, you know, kill each other when they're upset anymore. But in return, they get individual rights. And for Locke, these were things like life, liberty and property. And if that sounds a lot like the things that the founders of the United Mm -hmm. States were thinking about, that's because that was very directly influencing um, the American founders when they were writing things like the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution. And so social contract theory is really baked into a lot of American politics, but also really a lot of politics worldwide. And Mills is sort of saying, well, social contract theory is great. But when I was listing all those names, right, Hobbes, Locke, Rousseau, Kant, those are all white dudes. Mm -hmm. And so there's a question really around, you know, who writes this theory and who is left out when we think about individuals taken as equals? Well, at the time, even when Locke and Hobbes were alive, right, there wasn't true equality. Uh, People of color were not treated the same as white people, though our understandings of, of race, right, have have shifted a little bit, but if you look historically, there's still very much a racial hierarchy. And of course there's a gender hierarchy, like women weren't considered as being these individuals who are equal. 
But the scholars who were writing it basically just thought that it was okay to make a theory about all of society based entirely on white men. And so Mills is sort of pushing back and he's saying, well, actually, we can think about the fact that, you know, who the blind spots and we can use that to think about another type of contract. And so Mills calls this the racial contract. So if we think of the social contract, right, as the agreements among people to form society and be governed, well, the racial contract is, are the agreements among whites to uphold white supremacy. And it's not saying, you know, the social contract is wrong. These contracts are often in play. And we can think about these agreements as, as being really foundational to our societies. And the racial contract for Mills really determines in many ways who the social contract ends up applying to. And it really helps push back against this idea that in the individuals were all equal. Because Mills is like, well, no, obviously individuals are not equal at this moment of contracting. And so you see, right, that when you look at American politics, there are lots of places where we have these societal agreements. Think about mm -hmm. things like the Constitution. But often embedded in them are things like, you know, the three-fifths compromise, which is an agreement among whites to understand non-white people or enslaved people in particular as subhuman. And so you have this embedded within our, within our political system. And I hope through our class, I think we found a lot of other examples of places where the racial contract is at play, things like policing, mm -hmm. things like the doctrine of discovery, right? The idea that um, for even for American land, the idea that Europe, when Europeans claimed it and quote unquote discovered it, somehow that gave them a, um, a, a stronger legal land claim than indigenous populations who were already there. So really, I think this racial contract is a great tool. And another reason I love it so much is that it really puts the lens on whites. We often think about racism as hatred and oppression, and certainly those are big parts of it. But it's also the agreements among the dominant group that facilitate it. And so by pushing us to sort of see those agreements, Mills really helps us think about how white supremacy functions not just as hatred and oppression, but as a political system. So yeah, cool um, question. Thanks for asking. And then I'm going to get into critical race theory like more a little bit later. But given that the racial contract kind of explains like systemic and institutionalized racism in our country, do you believe that if critical race theory was taught, it should be part of the curriculum? I certainly do. And, you know, my I don't come at this from a position of, you know, proselytizing, so to speak. Um, mm -hmm. I, I ended up using critical race theory because in my own research, it was the body of literature that was the most helpful in explaining what I was seeing in the world. I basically found it as a scholar. I was trying to understand how race was embedded in parts of the American political economy. So, you know, things like credit and debt. And in those types of areas, it's not like someone is saying, you know, there's not a lot of overt hatred happening. It's a lot of sort of systemic decisions that are being made and often being presented as race neutral. Mm -hmm. And so to unpack and understand race in a lot and racism in a much more nuanced way, I think critical race theory is actually really important. And so I'm, I find it really um, unfortunate and, and in many ways uh, quite upsetting that there's this pushback against what I see as a very helpful and a very well scholarly 
established theory. So within the academy, critical race theory isn't really debated. Mm -hmm. This is just an area of academic research that came primarily out of legal academia, but there's a lot of work across the social sciences that feeds into it. Um, so Mills, Charles Mills, for example, comes from philosophy. Uh, we also talked about Kimberly Crenshaw, who comes from the legal scholarship tradition, or Ian Haney Lopez, who's also in that legal scholarship tradition. And these scholars really are, are not seen as, as controversial figures. Um, they're seen as people who are working in this particular area of, of inquiry. So yeah, it's, it's been really saddening to see how, how it has become a polarized issue within the United States. Mm -hmm. And then I also found it very interesting when we learned in class that the concept of race was developed as a social and political construct and isn't actually kind of backed by DNA at all, considering that we kind of see races as very distinct categories. Can you expound on that a tiny bit? Totally. This is one of my favorite things to teach in class as well, because I think certainly when I first started studying racial politics, I, I imagined that race had something to do with biology. And it was really interesting to realize that, in fact, in terms of genetics, so if we imagined like, um, after some sort of, you know, there was, say there was a, an apocalypse and all of humanity gets wiped out and some aliens come and they find, you know, human DNA, they wouldn't know that we have the quote unquote five races that are popularly understood as existing today. And if you look genetically, there's actually so much ambiguity between what we call races and so much variation within them that two people of European descent may actually be more genetically similar to an Asian person than they are to each other. Mm -hmm. So it actually like doesn't even map onto our genes, which is another reason why critical race theory is so important because it really emphasizes that race is a social construct. Now, something that I always, I always like to emphasize at this point is just to, to highlight that because race isn't genetic, because it's not biological, doesn't mean it's not real doesn't mean it's not important, doesn't mean it doesn't really have a strong impact on the everyday lives of millions of, of people, or of, of all of us, right? We all have, have race. Um, and so it's important to sort of emphasize that, right, sort of thinking about this as not biological means that it really opens us up to thinking about, well, well, what is race? And it's something that we have, as humans have constructed. And that in many ways, opens us up to thinking, well, we can, we can do a lot more about that. Mm -hmm. We can intervene in that. We can fight those constructs. We can write new constructs. It makes it a lot more malleable potentially. And so that I think is a place of a lot of hope, right? When you think mm -hmm. about, well, if race isn't this, you know, biologically inevitable feature, this is something that humans have made and constructed, then we have a lot more flexibility to think about how we might how we might approach systemic racism with that knowledge, right? That we can, that we can change those constructs. Mm -hmm. And then I guess I'd like to jump back into what we've kind of discussed all throughout this podcast, which is teaching critical race theory in schools. I know there's been a lot of misinformation out right now about what it actually is and what would kind of be taught. And many believe that it's somewhat un-American and it's meant to cause white children to kind of hate themselves and feel guilty. Can you shed some light on critical race theory and why you think it's so significant to be part of a school curriculum? Certainly. So first up, 
sort of thinking it's un-American, um, it, it definitely emerges from American law schools. So it, it has its roots very much within the American oh, yeah. context. All right. So folks like Kimberly Crenshaw and Derek Bell um, are coming out of Harvard Law School. And so it really has this very American um, history. And I think part of why it's so important, right, gets just back to the question we were talking about, because genetics tells us that race is not biological and therefore it's social. And because it's social, we need to really think about how we teach it in a way that doesn't just teach students that race is some sort of inevitable biological characteristic. And critical race theory has a lot of ways of approaching that. So for example, thinking about race as a social construct pushes us to think about how race is embedded within legal systems, how, how legal systems within the United States might treat people differently based on a perceived race and how that in some sense creates what we think of as race. Um, it also helps us understand more broadly, um, and a lot of, I think a lot of debate has been happening around America's racial history. So some scholars who are coming out of the critical race theory tradition are folks like Hannah Nicole Jones. And she um, wrote, worked with the New York Times to do the 1619 project, which tries to really rethink parts of American history to show just how central enslavement was. So that date, 1619, is one of the dates when we think that um, enslaved people were first brought to what would become the United States. Though actually I've learned recently that if you look at Puerto Rico, the date is even earlier. And so perhaps 1619 is actually a fairly Anglo-centric mm -hmm. approach. But in any case, the goal of projects like the 1619 Project is, is to help us rethink our history, to think about this social construction of race and how it really was constructed alongside and throughout American history, going back even before the founding of the United States. And so I think that's actually really important because it helps us get at something that Charles Mills calls the epistemology of ignorance, which is basically the idea that white people don't see race the same way that fish don't see water because mm -hmm. they haven't been taught to see it because they don't necessarily realize that they're part of the system. And projects like the 1619 Project are in some ways are trying to actively push back against that. They're trying to combat this epistemology of ignorance and provide education for everyone that allows us to, to more, more clearly see the racial history of the United States. And certainly that probably makes some people uncomfortable. And I think this is maybe where I don't disagree with some of the, the critics in that I think it's actually good to be uncomfortable. I think it's important to be uncomfortable. When you look at the, when you look at the, the, the outcomes related to race in America today, and you look at things like mass incarceration, when you look at how COVID disproportionately affected black and brown communities, I think we all should be uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. And so I, I actually think it's very important for us to learn to sit with that discomfort and that it's actually easier to do that at a younger age, as opposed to teaching children that everything is perfect. And then it's really a shock at some point when they learn about the rest of this history, when they first realize, oh my gosh, you know, I, as a white person, perhaps I'm, I'm, a, I'm part of this racial contract that I've been benefiting from for my entire life. Mm -hmm. And, you know, learning that later in life might actually be a lot more jarring than if this is something that students 
are exposed to much earlier. So that's mm -hmm. my that's my thoughts on it. But certainly this is a, a highly debated topic at the moment. So <laughs> folks, uh, there is plenty of disagreement out there. Oh, definitely. And then another interesting topic that I kind of liked that we touched upon in our final is the Harvard versus Students for Fair Admissions case. And it basically kind of pits one discriminated minority again against the others, I guess you could say. And could you provide like a very brief summary of the case as well as your personal opinion on it? Sure. And I was excited to give students the chance to write about this case because I think it's a really interesting one that's sort of one of the key issues around race in U.S. politics today. And so the lawsuit is being brought by someone named Edward Bloom and an organization he created called Students for Fair Admissions. And it wants to remove the consideration of race in college and university admissions. And so what's at stake in this case is really the ability of colleges and universities across the country to create diverse communities that some of these colleges say are essential to their educational mission and to the success of their students. And so the history of this case, to kind of give us a little bit of context, um, there's been cases going back to the Regents of University of California v Vibaki, which is from 1978. Oh, wow. um, and so that's sort of an early, an early case in which the Supreme Court, you can consider race in admissions under certain conditions. And then there is uh, Grutter v. Bollinger in 2003, which is another case in which the Supreme Court says that you can, you can consider race but the logic that the Supreme Court used in this case is that studies show it promotes better learning outcomes and better prepares students for an increasingly diverse workforce and society and life. It prepares them to be to be better professionals. And part of what's interesting about this, um, and then I guess just before I dive into that, another key case is. Um, Fisher versus University of Austin, Texas in 2016, which is another case in which the court still rules that affirmative action is permitted. But part of what's interesting, right, is in that Grutter v. Bollinger case, the logic behind affirmative action is basically that diversity promotes better learning outcomes and it prepares students for a diverse workforce. And part of what's interesting about this is that in some ways it's very much the, the um, experiences of white students. And a person whose work on this I really like is Natasha Weraku. She's a political scientist and sociologist who I believe is at the Harvard Kennedy School still. And she basically did a study where she talked with white students and students of color at Harvard, at Brown, and at Oxford in the UK. And she finds that in the US context, you see this, this um, position that she calls a diversity bargain in which white students reluctantly agree to affirmative action as long as it benefits them by providing a diverse learning environment. And in this way, racial sense is almost a commodity, a selling point on the brochure, right? You want to have a picture of a whole bunch of diverse faces. Mm -hmm. And so I think that really helps us see that in some ways, affirmative action is, is pretty complex. I tend to think of it as almost a bandaid on a bullet wound that the racial inequalities in America are profound and they affect students a long time before they are applying to college. And universities can't necessarily, you know, do things about that, though I suppose they could be more engaged in communities. They could think more about their role as educators beyond experience. But um, universities are trying to respond, trying to think about um, creating a more diverse pool 
But I think part of what's unfortunate is that the way the Supreme Court has worded diversity, it basically makes it this particular kind of um, of goal. It's not that diversity is important in and of itself. It's that diversity is important because it gives students, and here it's sort of implicitly white students, a better learning environment. Mm -hmm. So I think that's a, something that I find really interesting in this case. And another thing that I would love to dive into is just the way that Asian American students have been instrumentalized within this context. And in our class this semester, we read the work by Natsu Saito, who is a legal scholar who works on, um, on race and US politics. And we read her fantastic law review article, um, Model Minority Yellow Peril. So it's a, it's a sort of thinking about the politics of Asian American students. And in this article, something that she points out is that one big consequence of the model minority myth that is so popularly associated with Asian Americans and which comes up in this case, right? Because the argument is that Asian students are being denied places even though they are very academically qualified and sort of implicit in this is this idea that Asian students are this model minority, they're really smart, they deserve you know, to be at these top universities. And part of what's interesting about this model minority myth is that it, it actually, uh, inaccurately promotes the belief that Asian Americans as a whole have achieved, you know, massive economic success and social acceptance. And it also gets denied the existence of racism more broadly. So there's sort of an underhand way of saying, right, like, look at these Asian students. If they, if they have managed to, you know, get these amazing SAT scores, then what's wrong with these black and brown students? It can't mm -hmm. be racism. It must be them. It must be their culture. It must be their family environments, right? So it opens the door to this type of um, racism denying logic, which I think in many ways gets reinforced. But part of another thing that, that Natsu Saito brings up is really that in many ways, this, this sort of use of both model minority or yellow peril often gets basically determined by what's convenient for whites. And you're seeing that in this, in this case with Harvard admissions, right? The, uh, the group that is bringing this case, Students for Fair Admissions, is in some ways taking advantage of the fact that there's this model minority myth to do something that by and large would benefit white students. And they're using uh -huh. Asian Americans to kind of deny that race is important. And so I think it's a really, it's really unfortunate. Um, and my personal opinion is that I, I believe that race should still be should still be looked at in admissions and perhaps even ways that are somewhat more, um, more than Harvard is currently doing. So something that I notice as a university professor is that the way Harvard looks at race basically corresponds to the five races that we know are, you know, not real. They're not bio, they're the sort of biological conception of race. Mm -hmm. What I would prefer that Harvard looked at would be um, the descendants of enslaved populations. So I would really like to see schools like Harvard taking a more active role in responding to their own racial histories, their own implications in enslavement and slavery, and doing things that are more actively geared towards students who are affected by those types of histories. And so really thinking about race, not just as black or as Latinx or as Asian American, but as a student's relationship to the American racial history. So that would be my my preference, but mm -hmm. 
if I can't have that, I would at least like students to be universities and colleges to be able to continue to prioritize creating diverse communities. Mm -hmm. I completely agree. And one thing I found a little bit interesting when I researched the case is I thought it would be headed by like an Asian American college student, but it's actually led by a white Republican man who kind of, in a way, seems like grouped this vulnerable minority together for a little bit of his own benefit. Yeah, right. I feel like that that's a very astute thing to notice, right? Edward Bloom is is not an Asian American student. He is a white Republican political operative. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I don't want to imply that he can't care about students across racial boundaries. But I think you're right to be a little skeptical that um, it seems like what's being done here is is something that would primarily benefit white students. And the fact that Asian Americans are being mobilized around this, I think is getting at that idea that Saito points us to, right? That Asian Americans and this model minority myth often get used to, to deny racism, to present race as not being an important factor. Mm-hmm. And then finally, I know you're in the process of writing a book on race and bankruptcy. And I was wondering if you would be able to discuss a little bit of your research and what you found from that. Definitely. And thank you. Thanks for asking. Yeah. So my book is called um, Constructing White Supremacy, the Racial Politics of Personal Bankruptcy in the United States. And it comes from work that I did during writing my PhD dissertation at Harvard. And uh, it's interesting because I I really wanted to understand um, economic insecurity and debt. And when I started the project, I honestly didn't have a, a great background in racial politics. I didn't really think what I would be finding would be racialized. And then I started interviewing bankrupt Americans, mostly people going through what's called chapter 13 bankruptcy, which is the kind you can file to prevent your home from a foreclosure. So it tends to be folks on the whole who are a little more middle class. Um, So I started interviewing people going through chapter 13 bankruptcy and I started interviewing them in January, 2017, which is right when Donald Trump was taking office. Mm -hmm. And I ended up having many interesting conversations with Trump supporters as a result of this project. So the sort of average person I interviewed was usually a middle-aged, middle-class Trump supporter uh, living in a suburban area. And part of what I found was that there was um, there was language that the people I was interviewing were using the language that the people I interviewed used was different than the language I was using as a political scientist. And one of the terms that people kept saying was this idea of the entitled. So I'd ask them about their politics and what they thought were the problems that were facing America in terms of politics. And they would say, oh, the big problem is the entitled. And I was like, I don't know who the entitled are. What do you mean? And so I spent a lot of time trying to unpack this, trying to figure out who the entitled were, according to the people I was interviewing. And what I found was that the group of Trump supporters in my in my research, they had a pretty different understanding of the entitled than sort of the other maybe third of the people I was interviewing who and they weren't like the other the other people weren't like Democrats. They were just generally a lot less political, more like um, 
disenchanted moderates would probably be the best way to describe them. But for the folks who are the Trump supporters, they understood the entitled as being very tied up in identity politics. So they saw it as racial minorities, ethnic minorities, folks with different sexual orientations. Um, and they believed that this group who they called the entitled were basically taking from, from society through things like welfare, through things like um, social programs, and that they weren't hardworking. So they weren't giving anything into the common pot. And part of what was fascinating is that these were people who are literally going through bankruptcy. Mm -hmm. And in many ways, bankruptcy is a giant middle-class welfare state. And so part of what is fascinating is, right, is that the white folks who I was interviewing, who were thinking of themselves as, you know, not part of this group relying on the government, were in fact themselves relying on the government. But because of how we've constructed welfare in America, when I say welfare, you probably imagine cash welfare, mm -hmm. like aid, um, temporary aid for needy families, which is actually a pretty small program in the scheme of things. And sure, some types of welfare um, are used slightly more by groups that are racial minorities. But actually, when you look at the numbers, a lot more white folks use them than um, black and brown folks, just because there's a lot more white Americans out there. Um, so those things are often understood as being really racialized, even when they're not. But part of what's fascinating is that all these middle class people don't see themselves as, as benefiting from the welfare state or as relying on government. In fact, their narrative is that they are the hardworking, the not entitled. Mm -hmm. But really, they're also very much implicated in this system. And that choice of how to construct our welfare state, right? So that there's bankruptcy, which can be used by everyone, but primarily used by like white middle class homeowners, in particular, this chapter 13 kind. And then we have other forms of welfare, which are much more, you know, racialized means that people don't see themselves as being part of a broader group. So there you don't get the solidarity you might expect. And so, yeah, that's part of part of what I found is really uh -huh. just that uh, the way Americans understand things like welfare and entitlement are deeply connected to how race is a social construct. And if you look sort of over the history of bankruptcy as well, you see that it's it, it kind of goes it has these deep racial roots because it's tied up in debt and credit. And if you look back to the pre-Civil War era, bankruptcy was actually one of the ways that the United States courts were deeply involved in slave auctions. So when someone would go bankrupt in you know, pre-Civil War, especially in the South, um, their property would get auctioned off and that included enslaved people. And that was often the moment when these families would be broken up, when families would, people would be sent to all different parts of the country. It was actually one of the most common moments for slaves to run away if possible. Um, but it also means that the government was much more actively and much more intimately involved in enslavement than we might imagine, right? So the government here is taking the key role. And in many states, like in South Carolina, these bankruptcy auctions were the biggest source of uh, the buying and enslaved people. Oh, wow. So it's, you know, it's not a small piece of this history. Uh, and I, I, I really didn't appreciate when I started the project just how tied up in race this would be. And these racial roots really continue today. So for example, you, you can't discharge student loans in bankruptcy. And on its face, that seems like it doesn't have anything to do with race. But when you realize that black students 
have far more student debt than white students. And that that difference expands massively after graduation because white students are much more likely to get access to programs to reduce their debt. They're more likely to get family aid. They're more likely to, to have advantages that let them pay down that debt burden. You can mm -hmm. see that not being able to discharge a student loan in bankruptcy actually has profound racial consequences. Yeah. And so I, I became really fascinated with how race is embedded in the American political economy. And that was sort of how I ended up studying critical race theory. Mm -hmm. so, Thank yeah. you so much for telling me a little bit about that. I look forward to reading it. Oh, thanks. Yeah. Thank you so much for joining me today on Politically Blonde. I really appreciated your time. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you enjoyed this episode with Professor Wise. Please make sure to check out my website, politicallyblonde.net, and my Instagram at politicallyblondepodcast. I'll be back next month with another important and relevant political topic to discuss.